a little over a year ago, uh, after uh, repeated assaults, um, after being outnumbered three to one, I finally cave in, my defenses broke down, and my family bought a dog, DJ. So yeah, we, uh, we got a dog, uh, and for the first couple months that we had him, he had an experience of what we might now call real life. Uh, what I mean by that is he would get up in the morning and he would have, you know, I don't know, about an hour or so where he could run around with the family, he could sit next to people, uh, he could get his, his head scratched. Um, but then he, people would leave. The girls would go to school, Heidi and I would go to work, and he would be on his own for a good chunk of the day. Uh, then, of course, we'd get home, he'd get to play again, he'd get to snuggle with people on the couch, and it would be, it would be fun. Uh, that was real life. But then, of course, not too long after that, uh, COVID happened, or what DJ calls the best year of his life, right? Because in the past year, he's been living in a dream world wherein he is almost never left alone, left by himself. There's always somebody home. There's always somebody he can beg for food. There's always somebody he can entice to take a break and sit with him on the couch. Always someone he can uh, entice to scratch his belly. Uh, it's been a dream world for the past year, but it's not the real world. And I'm afraid he received a rude reminder of this a couple weeks ago uh, when our girls went back to school in person two days a week. Uh, all of a sudden, he was left alone again for a good chunk of the day. This was real life intruding upon his dream, and he was not happy about it. I tell you that this morning because the disciples, I think, have a moment something like this as we get to the second half of Luke chapter 9. In the first half of the chapter, they have lived through a pretty incredible stretch in their time with Jesus. I imagine it's the kind of stretch they had in mind when they started following him. But it doesn't last. It doesn't last. As we get to the second half, real life intrudes on them as well. Uh, but before we get there, I just want to take a moment this morning to remind us of what's happened in the first half of the chapter. Uh, if you want to follow along, you can. Uh, at the beginning of Luke chapter 9, you'll see that in verse 1, uh, Jesus deputizes his disciples to go out to heal people and to proclaim the kingdom of God. It says that he specifically gave them power and authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases. And, as it happens, that's what they do. Jesus gives them that power and authority. He sends them out. And for an undisclosed period of time, they're going throughout the countryside. And they're doing that. They're casting out demons. They're healing people. And they're proclaiming the kingdom of God. I have to imagine that that was awfully exciting and fulfilling for them. It was the kind of experience, you would think, uh, that would have substantially raised their hopes and strengthened their faith in Jesus. By the time they returned to Jesus, a little while later, uh, word about Jesus has spread so far and so effectively uh, that another large crowd has gathered to hear Jesus. Uh, and they're so persistent that when, when Jesus tries to take the disciples and to go off into a remote area, probably, so they can debrief on the disciples' experiences, the crowds won't be put off. They follow Jesus and the disciples out into this remote area. Until finally, Jesus acknowledges uh, there's, there's nothing for it. Uh, he's, he gets up. He starts teaching them, as he often does. Uh, he heals many people. But after this goes on for a while, it creates a logistical problem. 
Because now, here they are in this remote area, but thousands of people have followed them there. And now, surprise, surprise, they're hungry, and there's no food to be had. Well, once again, Jesus provides the solution. Even though he and the disciples had just five loaves and two fish, somehow Jesus is able to feed this crowd of thousands of people so that everyone was full and they still had 12 baskets of bread left over. It's another experience that you would think would really strengthen the disciples' faith in who Jesus is. Shortly after that, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a hill to pray. And while they're there praying, they witness what we call the transfiguration, where the the glory of Jesus is unveiled. It's not a subtle thing. Luke says that according to the three who witnessed it, all of a sudden his appearance became like lightning. And in case the disciples didn't find that impressive enough, shortly thereafter, there are Elijah and Moses, two titans of Israel's history. They appear with Jesus, talking with Jesus about the future of his ministry. And in case that wasn't impressive enough, once Elijah and Moses depart, the cloud of God's presence surrounds the disciples and an audible voice from heaven says, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. That, friends, if you ask me, is a heady stretch. I have to imagine if you or I lived through that, uh, that would profoundly change us. I mean, the disciples lived what so so many people long for. They got a clear, unambiguous, visible, tangible, audible proof of the power and glory of Jesus. They have witnessed firsthand his glory. They've even now shared in his ministry. But this week, as we get to the second half of Luke chapter 9, they return to real life. And the question I want to ask this morning is this. Has their experience changed them? Has it changed them? Or was this just a great experience? Something that they found impressive but then left behind? Or did it become, did it, did it put down deep roots and become the foundation for a, for a deeper trust in Jesus and in his mission? Did their time on the metaphorical mountaintop produce excitement only or the kind of excitement that led to deep life change? Well, in our passage today, we have three short vignettes, each following quickly on the heels of the last. And together, uh, I think they give us a lens for answering that question. So what I'd like to do this morning is to walk through each story just one at a time. And then at the end, I'd like to regroup, go back to that first question, and to see what these, how these stories might provide an answer. So if you've got your Bible open, you turn with me to, to chapter 9, verse 37. So this is following the transfiguration. He and the three disciples, Jesus and the three disciples are on their way down. And it says, The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and it's destroying him. I begged your disciples. I begged them to drive it out, but they could not do it. 
You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. So here we are, back to reality. As soon as Jesus comes down the mountain, he finds that there is a large crowd gathered and waiting for him. And right away, a man in the crowd yells out to Jesus. His son, he says, is possessed, and the unclean spirit never leaves him. It's destroying him. He then adds an interesting detail. He says, by the way, I've begged your disciples to help me, but they could not do it. If we're tempted to gloss over that little detail, Jesus' kind of startling response makes sure that we can't. He says, you unbelieving generation, how long do I have to put up with you? Now, it's worth noting, we don't know exactly to whom that reply is directed. Is it to the disciples? Is it to the crowds? Is it both? We don't know for sure. But what we do know, because Luke just told us, is that at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus has specifically given the disciples the power and the authority to do exactly this kind of thing. And what's more, we know that after he sent them out, they did it all over around, all around the countryside. So what happened here? What's the problem? Well, again, we don't know what made this situation different, but we do know from Jesus' response that at least part of the problem is a lack of faith, a lack of faith. And so once again, it falls to Jesus. And Jesus, having compassion for this man and his son, rebukes the demon and restores the boy. As usual, the crowds are amazed, as they should be. But the disciples, we could conclude, have maybe digressed. I mean, earlier in the chapter, they were participants in this kind of ministry, now it seems like they're at risk of being reduced once again to spectators. So I think we have to say, if there has been a change here, it hasn't been very good, or at least it hasn't been in the right direction. That brings us to the second little vignette. So look at the second half of verse 43. Here we, we hear that while the crowds are marveling at what Jesus has just done, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says this. He says, listen carefully, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. So what do we make of this? Well, first, I think you need to know that this is the second time in this chapter that Jesus has predicted his death. He does it earlier on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, and both times he does it, in other words, right after an act of great power. And both times he does it as a sort of private aside to his disciples. I don't think the timing is coincidental. I suspect Jesus seizes a teachable moment because he knows what the disciples and what everyone is thinking when they see his acts of great power. The disciples are looking at that and they're going, that's what we're talking about. 
Jesus can use that power to smash the Romans and set up his own kingdom. They think that because, of course, that's what they would do if they had his power. History tells us that's what pretty much everyone tries to do, given enough power. And so Jesus takes this teachable moment and he looks just to his disciples. He says, listen, I know what you're thinking, but those goals are not my goals. My ministry isn't headed towards a great climactic military victory. It's headed toward a sacrificial death. Now I grant you, and we should, in fairness to the disciples, admit, that's a really hard thing for anyone to process, especially given the power that Jesus has displayed. I mean, it'd be really tempting to look at him and think, who, who, who could ever stop somebody who can rebuke the wind and waves? Who could feed an army of thousands on just a few loaves of bread and fish? But we also need to say, his disciples aren't the crowds. They have had the benefit of extended teaching, of more time with Jesus, of private explanations. They have seen his glory. They've experienced his power. And now they have even shared in his work. They've been deputized to proclaim the kingdom. They have lived with him, traveled with him, eaten with him. Surely if anyone was going to understand, to start to grasp this, it would be them. But verse 45 says, they did not understand. And worse, I think, they were afraid to ask him about it. Again, in their defense, usually what sets the disciples apart is that they are the ones who ask. Where the crowds are content just to be amazed and to see something impressive, the disciples are the ones who stick around and ask more questions. Right? Where the crowds are content to be impressed with authoritative teaching, it's the disciples who circle back to Jesus and go, yes, yes, but what does this mean? Tell us more. That's been what sets them apart. And yet here, critically, they don't ask. Now this is only my guess, but my guess is that they are starting to suspect that Jesus has radically different goals than they do. They're starting to suspect that their hopes and expectations for what Jesus is going to do don't line up with Jesus' own plans. And I think they're afraid to have that confirmed. I think perhaps they don't ask because they don't want to know. They don't want to hear that Jesus is going to be handed over to die. So once more, I think we conclude that if there has been change in the life of the disciples, there hasn't been very much, or at least not much yet. All right, that brings us to the final section here. Uh, hot on the heels of their failure to understand where Jesus is headed, uh, and almost as though to hammer home the fact that they don't understand it, the disciples immediately return to the recurring argument over who is the greatest. Again, Jesus, knowing this is what they're arguing about, once more seizes a teachable moment. So he grabs a small child. He brings this child over into the midst of the disciples. He says, okay, if you want to know the path to greatness in my kingdom, here it is. If you want to be great in my kingdom, welcome this little child and those like him in my name. Because whoever welcomes this child welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who has sent me. That's how you become great in my kingdom. 
And then he says, for it is the least among you who will be the greatest. This is another profound teaching where Jesus takes the values the disciples just take for granted and he tries to flip them on their head. But then, as though to prove that they have totally missed the point, John, in a great non sequitur, says, uh, okay, by the way, Jesus, we saw earlier a guy wandering around uh, and he was casting out demons in your name. But don't worry, we told him to stop because he is not one of us. Okay, well, let's try and unpack for a minute what the disciples are objecting to here. Is it that they're upset that the, this guy is casting out demons? Well, that seems unlikely. I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing Jesus just has done. It's the kind of thing the disciples themselves were doing, so that can't be the problem. Could the problem be that they're casting out demons in Jesus' name? Well, it's hard to see how that could be a problem. I mean, they're doing the kinds of things Jesus and his disciples are doing in the name of Jesus. That all seems fine. So what's the problem? Well, John, of course, told us. The problem is he's not one of us. The disciples stopped him because they saw somebody who they were afraid was encroaching on their unique status as Jesus' disciples. As you might expect, Jesus rebukes this attitude, and he says, don't stop him. Anyone who's not against you is for you. In other words, both of these little short episodes here depict a jealousy and rivalry that is antithetical to Jesus' ministry and message. They both betray a failure to understand Jesus' core kingdom values. And it's disappointing, I think, because the disciples have watched over and over as Jesus has healed and talked with, eaten with, celebrated with, and otherwise prioritized people of low status. I mean, you could argue they themselves are beneficiaries of that. I mean, who are they that Jesus would call them to be his disciples? They have even praised Jesus for this orientation. But so far, that admiration has not translated into emulation. All right, so those are the three little vignettes here. Let's look back, circle back to my original question. How has that incredible stretch in the first half of chapter 9, has that changed the disciples? Has it strengthened their faith? Has it given them greater understanding of what Jesus is about? Well, at least at this point in the narrative, the answer, I think, has to be not much or not yet. Luke even adds, in case you think this is just sort of an arbitrary question I made up, Luke adds some narrative urgency to this, by the way. In the very next verse, verse 951, it says that from then on, Jesus sets his sights on Jerusalem, where he knew he was going to die. In other words, Jesus is now headed towards the climax of his ministry, towards his own death, and the disciples, at least for now, were not ready. They weren't ready. They have seen Jesus' power and glory. They have heard his message, but it has not yet taken root. Or it might be better to say, it's taken root, but it hasn't yet borne fruit. It hasn't yet borne fruit. The disciples have followed Jesus, but they clearly have further to go. 
Now, I know that's kind of a downer for a sermon conclusion, uh, but there's more, so don't worry yet. Uh, I, have, I think there's actually, even though that's not real uplifting, I think there's two important insights in there for us today. First, these passages, I think, remind us quite clearly that you do not need to be perfect to follow Jesus. What should be clear, after what we've read today, is that the disciples were not a finished product the day that Jesus called them. They were imperfect vessels. In fact, as we can tell from these three stories, even after a fairly extended period of time with Jesus in the flesh, they still have a very tenuous grasp on the nature of Jesus' kingdom. And really, they have no understanding of how Jesus is going to win his great victory. And yet, here's the amazing thing and the encouraging thing. If you keep reading Luke's work, if you make your way to Acts, you'll find out that God will use these same people to build that kingdom and to proclaim that victory. My junior year of high school, uh, or the summer after my junior year, I was looking ahead to my senior year, uh, and I was particularly excited um, for the year in youth group. Uh, a couple friends and I were, were excited. We had been challenged to take seriously uh, the responsibility of being leaders in our youth group, and we had all personally uh, been greatly influenced by upperclassmen who had done the same for us. Uh, but at one point, I started to get nervous about that, uh, I started to doubt whether or not I should do that. I was wrestling with some of my own sin and my own problems. Uh, and, and I confided to my mentor at one point during the summer. I said, you know what, maybe, maybe I need to take myself out of that. I, I don't know. I, I got to maybe get my own stuff in, in line first before I'm ready for God to use me like that. And my mentor said, well, that could be true. Uh, there is a point where you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to make sure uh, that you are being obedient. And he said, but you know, you've got to be careful on the other end. Because there's a lot of people who wait their whole life, waiting for the moment where they're going to be good enough, perfect enough for God to use them effectively, and they never get there. And then he asked me a really strange question. He said, how old is your car? I was like, why, are you looking to buy one? He said, no, no, just humor me. How old is your car? And I said, well, 13 years old. Uh, I think we got to pick, it's not the exact car, but it's the correct model. I had an 88 Cutlass Sierra, same color, baby blue. Um, and he said, well, would you say that car's in pristine condition? I was like, it is in nothing like pristine condition. And he was like, how close would you say your car is to the condition it was in when it rolled off the assembly line? And I was like, oh, 40% at best. So it's got all kinds of problems. I feel like every time I drive it somewhere, something odd happens, right? And, and he said, and yet you keep driving it. I was like, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's got its quirks, it's got its problems, but it gets me from point A to point B just fine. And he's like, so it's not garbage. I said, no, I, I, I find it very useful. It'd be hard for me to live my life without a car. And he said, oh, that's interesting. It's not pristine. It's not perfect. It's got lots of problems. And yet, you find it to be very useful. And he said, maybe you should think of yourself like your car. 
You should take care of yourself. You want to make sure you're in good condition. But God can still find you very, very useful, even though you're far from perfect. Friends, I'm going to go out on a limb here and and, uh, guess that that's good news probably for all of us this morning. None of us, I expect, were perfect when we were called either. And just like the disciples, I would suspect that none of us here today are a finished product quite yet. But here's the thing. We don't need to be. Jesus' call is for all people, whatever our situation However far away you might think you are from God, these stories remind us, they show us, that God delights to work in and through regular people. He worked through the disciples powerfully, and he will work through you too. That leads me to the second insight, which is that following Jesus, following Jesus should change us. Listen, we are all welcome to come to Jesus just as we are. But no one who follows Jesus should remain unchanged. And I want to emphasize this morning that we have a responsibility there, too. Uh, It's tempting to believe, I know, because I've been tempted to believe it, that if God was just a little bit more direct with us, you know, if if he could just appear to us visibly, speak to us audibly, say, once a month, It's tempting to believe that if he would just do that for us, then our faith would be rock solid. We would trust implicitly in in everything that God was doing. I mean, you could say, who could experience those kinds of things? Who could experience those kinds of things and not have absolute trust in God? Who could witness that and fail to believe? Well, if Luke's to be trusted, it turns out lots of people can do that. Think about what we just read. The disciples had the benefit of all of those kinds of things, and they still did not instantly understand all that God was doing. They did not immediately trust in Jesus in all things. In fact, if you read on, they continue trying to push back against Jesus' notion that he is going to have to die. But they do one thing that's perhaps the most important, A key thing. They don't understand perfectly. They don't believe implicitly. But they keep following. They keep following. They keep watching Jesus, listening to Jesus, and participating with Jesus. And little by little, that does change them. When we see these people much later in the narrative, in the book of Acts, they are different. They are changed by their time with Jesus. And they're changed, too, profoundly by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not perfect, still not perfect, but certainly the kind of people that God needs them to be. And God did work powerfully through them to build his church and to spread the good news about Jesus. Wherever you are in your walk today, whether you've started following Jesus recently, whether you've been walking with him for decades, or even if you've not yet decided to follow, what I want you to be sure of this morning when you leave is that that path, the one the disciples walked before us, that same path is open to you. You are free to come to it however you are. You're not expected to be a finished product, 
when you get there and you're not expected to be a finished product when you're halfway to the goal, but if you will just walk that path, God can and will use you. You don't have to be perfect to follow Jesus. The disciples certainly weren't. But following Jesus should and will change you. Would you bow with me once again? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we we give you thanks and we marvel, honestly, at your grace. Uh, The fact that your invitation stands today just as it did then, open to every single person. That none of us has to do any sort of preparation uh, to approach you. That, That you will welcome us just as we are. But Lord, we also thank you that you don't leave us how you found us. That by the work and power of your spirit, you will slowly transform us. That you will turn us into the people that you have called us and created us to be. I thank you, God, for the amazing truth that you delight to work through regular people, through imperfect vessels. Lord, I thank you for the proof we have all around us, the fact that you have built your huge kingdom by working through ordinary men and women just like us. God, I pray that that would be an encouragement to us. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to work through us, through our church here in our community. God, we ask that you would be at work through us in the lives of our friends and family, neighbors and coworkers, all the people around us who so badly need to hear the good news about Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.